your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Good afternoon, and welcome to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Wellness Community. Your host is Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Wellness Community. This hour is designed to inspire, inform, and to help you live better with cancer. Now, here's your host, Kim Tibaldo. Welcome to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Wellness Community, an internet radio show that focuses on informing and inspiring people to live well with cancer. I'm Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Wellness Community, an international nonprofit organization dedicated to providing support, education, and hope to people with cancer and their loved ones. Our services are offered at over 100 locations worldwide and online at www.thewellnesscommunity.org. Before we begin today's topic, let's move to a segment we call Cancer in the News, which highlights the latest cancer headlines. I'm Bill Schaefer, and this is today's Cancer in the News. The so-called breast cancer genes, BRCA1 and BRCA2, can raise the risk that a man who develops prostate cancer will get an aggressive form of the disease, U.S. researchers reported on Thursday. Certain mutations in the genes indicated that a man was at risk of more aggressive cancer and should be treated right away. Their study of 2,000 Jewish men shows the gene mutation, more common among Jews of European descent, might help show which men have a slow-growing tumor that may not need immediate treatment. One of the biggest problems with early-stage prostate cancer is being able to distinguish between tumors with the potential to become aggressive and those that may persist for years without enlarging or spreading. Researchers say that their large study shows conclusively the prostate cancer patients with either the BRCA2 gene mutation or either of the two BRCA1 mutations are more susceptible to aggressive cancers than people without those mutations. For their study, scientists tested 975 men with prostate cancer and 1,251 men without it for BRCA1 and BRCA2 both rare genetic mutations known in women to raise the risk of breast and ovarian cancers considerably. Men with any one of the three mutations in the two genes were not any more likely to be in the prostate cancer group, but if they did have one, their cancer was much more likely to be of an aggressive type. Prostate cancer is the second leading cancer killer of men, killing 221,000 every year globally, with 679,000 new cases diagnosed. In other news, women who underwent chest radiation as part of treatment for childhood cancer often are not getting recommended breast cancer screenings despite being at a high risk for the disease, researchers announced. Their study involved women in the United States and Canada who had cancers such as Hodgkin's disease as children or young adults and were treated with moderate to high-dose radiation to the chest, which can raise the risk of breast cancer. Experts recommend these women have an annual mammogram or breast x-ray to screen for breast cancer starting at age 25 or eight years after radiation treatment, whichever is later. But among women ages 25 to 39 in this group, 47% had never had a mammogram and only 23% had undergone one in the past year, revealing rates much lower than anticipated. By age 45, up to 20% of these women get breast cancer, many of them in their 30s. The results from the study do not show a question of the women avoiding screening, but rather a lack of understanding their risk and physicians being unfamiliar with the risk in this population, especially for the younger patients. 
the reason they have a high breast cancer risk is the whopping dose of radiation they received in their childhood cancer treatment. A lifetime of mammograms would amount to less than 1% of that earlier radiation exposure. Mammograms are important in spotting breast cancer at an early stage when it is most treatable. The American Cancer Society recommends women start getting annual mammograms at age 40, so doctors do not usually discuss it with younger women. I'm Bill Schaefer, and that's today's Cancer in the News. Having cancer is not easy. With over 12 million cancer survivors living in the United States today, we all know someone that has been affected by the disease. On this show, we encourage our listeners to not only get the best medical treatments available, but also to take care of themselves emotionally when coping with a cancer diagnosis. But while you battle cancer, your body begins to change, and what was once familiar now becomes the unknown. Oftentimes, side effects from cancer treatments can lead to sexuality and intimacy issues with a partner or loved one. On today's show, we're going to examine how cancer can create sexuality and intimacy issues and how those issues can be addressed. We'll also talk about fertility and the cost of wanting a family after you've had cancer. We are joined today by two wonderful guests who bring important perspectives and expertise to the show today. First, we have Dr. Leslie Shover. Leslie is a Ph.D. psychologist and a professor of behavioral science at the University of Texas M.D. Anderson Cancer Center. Welcome, Leslie. Thank you. It's great to be here. We're also here with one of Leslie's colleagues, Pamela Lewis, who has a master's in clinical sociology and is a senior behavioral research coordinator, well, that's a mouthful, uh, at the University of Texas, MD Anderson Cancer Center also. Uh, Pamela is also a cancer survivor, and thanks for being here, Pamela. Thanks, Kim. So we're, we're thrilled to have you both. We've got a really important topic um, to discuss today, so we're going to jump right in. Pamela, I'd like to start with you, um, and I, I was wondering if you would tell us a little bit about your own personal cancer experience. Well, I was diagnosed at age 36 years old, and it was doing a routine baseline. Mm-hmm. I had no idea what a baseline was. I learned about it when coming to work here at MD Anderson and coordinating the SPIRIT study. And witnessing the devastation of survivors, particularly young survivors that were passing away on my study, I decided that I better go in and do a baseline. And a couple of months later, I was diagnosed. And so so what year was that? That was in 2005. I was diagnosed with breast cancer on November 16, 2005. And tell us a little bit about what you were, what happened from there, what your, what your treatment was, what your, what your path was from there. Tell us a little bit more about that. Well, I was diagnosed with stage 1, non-invasive, breast cancer, node negative. And my tumor was like 6 millimeters, so at this point it wasn't a large tumor, but if I had waited to 40 years old, it would have been um, very, uh, from what I hear, a poor prognosis because I am ERPR pos- uh, positive. Tell our folks what that means. That is estrogen positive and progesterone positive. And from what some oncologists have told me is that at times estrogen cells tend to feed too much estrogen, tend to feed cancer cells. Mm-hmm. So, so it, fuel, I have it fuels, that, the, fuels the cancer? Mm-hmm. So I have that risk of um, worrying about hormones and too much estrogen in my body for cancer returning. And um, as far as the baseline, a lot of women don't know that at age 35, uh, we, you know, should go in and do a mammogram uh, more than just taking a normal breast health exam with our PCP or our gynecologist. 
Mm-hmm. So I wasn't aware of all of that. So I think by working at Anderson and coming in contact with the project, that made me, you know, become aware of breast cancer more and what I should do. So we really think about the message out there really is your first mammogram is at 40, but in fact, most doctors will say, actually, you need to get a baseline, 35, 36 at that time. Yes, and especially for those women who may have a history of breast cancer or other cancers in their family. Now, for me, I did not have breast cancer in my family, although we do have some members who had prostate and lung cancer. However, there was never a history of breast cancer. Mm-hmm. And, and if you weren't working with cancer patients and working in the environment that you're working with, you, you may have never gone to get that baseline. No, I never would have. I probably would have followed up at 40 years old. Wow. That's amazing. That's amazing. And if I can make a comment, yes, one of the special things, um, Pamela mentioned our SPIRIT study, which is a study for African-American breast cancer survivors in particular. And one of the reasons that we chose that group is that when women are under age 45, African-American women have the highest rates of breast cancer of any ethnicity. And then when you get past menopause, it reverses. But mm. there there is an, a kind of an excess of young African-American women who get breast cancer and often get very aggressive tumors. Do we know why that is, Leslie? That's still somewhat of a mystery. I, I think that the whole debate about is it something in the environment that women are exposed to or is there some genetic kind of risk among African-American women is, is you know, totally still being researched. So there are some theories out there, but we really don't know the facts yet. Yeah. Okay, it will be interesting to see as that research unfolds. Um, Leslie, let me turn to you a little bit. Um, t- t- give, us, give us a sense, and I know obviously we could probably take three hours or more to have this conversation, but give us a sense of what are, what are some of the most common sexual problems that arise after someone's been diagnosed with cancer. Obviously a difficult diagnosis it has a tremendous impact physically emotionally but you know we're talking today about some topics that people generally don't want to talk about and that maybe things that aren't going to be coming up with your doctor so i really want to make sure we're getting the most out of this show and uh, talking about some of those difficult subjects well you know the amazing thing is given that there are so many different types of cancer and different cancer treatments the problems that bring people in tend to be very similar. For women, we see women, the most common thing is having pain with sexual activity, especially intercourse, because of vaginal dryness mm-hmm. or because of having had surgery in the pelvis that might have caused scar tissue. And um, women who have um, chemotherapy and are, have not yet had menopause when they're diagnosed and then go through a very sudden change of life are probably the most vulnerable to those problems. And the other thing for women is losing interest in sex, mm-hmm. not having spontaneous desire or lust feelings, and then when you try to have sex, having trouble getting in the mood and getting excited and feeling pleasure. And is that a physical, is that a a physiological response to the treatment, or is that emotional, or is that both? It's probably both. Mm -hmm. You know, again, we see that more often in women who have sudden menopause, which might suggest that, you know, some of the hormonal changes are responsible, although myself, what I often see is that women start having 
pain experiences during sex and it's very daunting. I mean, who wants to look forward to sex and know it's going to hurt? And so that makes women kind of compartmentalize themselves, you know, kind of wall themselves off from their sexual feelings and then, you know, not have much desire for sex because who wants to do something that's going to disappoint and hurt you? Leslie, I've also heard women say that, you know, maybe they've had some scarring surgery. Um, Maybe some women have chosen not to have reconstruction, uh, particularly in breast cancer, um, and that they don't necessarily perhaps feel attractive uh, to their partner, or they don't necessarily want their partner to see uh, to see their to see them without a breast, or is that does that sometimes become a factor in, in sexual activity as well? I think it's a factor, but a less important one than the stereotype. You know, there have been a number of studies over the years that have compared women who had mastectomy mm-hmm. with women who had lumpectomy and radiation or yes. reconstruction, and their sex lives are not different. You know, they have sex the same amount of time and say they enjoy it as much or have the same rates of problems. Mm-hmm. But the one thing that's different is women's ratings of their own attractiveness. Okay. And women who have breast reconstruction or, or, or who have a lumpectomy will say they feel more attractive. I see. Okay. Now tell us a little bit about some of the common things that men are, are facing after a cancer experience. Well, as you might expect, the, mm-hmm. the most common problem that we see in men is, is having difficulty getting or keeping hard erections. And while women, often for women, chemotherapy and its effect on, on the ovaries is a big factor for men, chemotherapy is, is much more rarely a problem, but what can be the biggest problem are having a surgery in the pelvic area, like for prostate or bladder or colon cancer, mm-hmm. that messes up the nerves and little blood vessels that are important in the erection process. And also radiation therapy, because radiation creates uh, a lot of inflammation, and during the healing process over months, some of the little blood vessels really kind of die off, and then as the blood supply lessens, the nerves get affected. So, Leslie, we're going to go to a break in just a couple minutes here, but um, talk a little bit more about, uh, I think that most people would think maybe prostate cancer is uh, is really the main kind of cancer that would cause some sexual issues or sexual dysfunction in men, but you're saying that it can be the treatment, and men who are being treated for other kinds of cancer can experience that as well. Can you elaborate on that a little bit, Leslie? Sure. It's not so much anything to do with the prostate itself. It's mm-hmm. that the nerves that are important in directing blood flow into the penis to, to create an erection run right along side of the prostate. Sometimes I th- say, think like if the prostate was like an apple and the nerves ran along the skin of the apple. So when they remove the prostate in surgery or when they do radiation to the prostate, those nerves and blood vessels are, you know, typically damaged. And, um, you know, invasive bladder cancer where people have their bladder removed in surgery that that involves removing the prostate and the little glands behind it, the seminal vesicles. So that has very similar or even more severe results. And the other thing is that colon cancer, when it's low in the rectum, um, is right behind the prostate. And so, again, the treatment, whether it's surgery or radiation, has many of the same side effects. And, and so do, do those things apply to women as well, those, the, those statements? 
Well, a, a little differently, um, because in women, it's true that any of those types of surgeries can create, you know, problems, but part of it may be because sometimes part of the vagina itself is removed and reconstructed mm-hmm. to be narrower or less deep than it was, mm-hmm. and also because when you're doing surgery around, you know, kind of nearby the vagina, some of the the um, the cushioning, like the you can think of the, the rectum and the anus right behind the vagina, is giving a little bit of cushioning to the back of the vagina. And if those are removed and there's scar tissue instead, yeah. again, that's something that can really create pain during intercourse, and you have to find positions that don't, you know, kind of stretch that area. Right. We're uh, talking about sexuality and intimacy today on Frankly Speaking About Cancer. We will be right back. Your life, your health, your network. Voice America Health & Wellness. Effective cancer treatment requires more than just medication or surgery. For the country's 12 million cancer survivors and their loved ones, the social and emotional challenges of adapting to life with cancer are ongoing. How to handle coworkers' questions, how to get comfortable with new physical realities, how to reassure worried family members, or explain to friends your priorities have changed. For more than 25 years, the wellness community has been the nation's leader in providing free counseling, education, and hope for survivors and their caregivers. Whether online or at one of our 26 centers in the U.S. and abroad, the wellness community is ready to offer the support you need to live a better life with cancer. For more information on support groups, publications, nutrition, exercise programs, and more, call 1-888-793-WELL or visit us online at www.thewellnesscommunity.org. That's thewellnesscommunity.org. The Wellness Community, celebrating over 25 years of cancer support, education, and hope. It attacks the brain, and you might not know what hit you. It's a stroke, and it can cripple or kill you. If suddenly you're numb or weak on one side, limb, or face, it could be a stroke. Get help. There's no time to waste. It could even be a sudden, severe headache without cause. If you wait to get help, time lost is brain lost. Maybe it's a loved one slurring their speech or dizzy. Call 911 and get medical help quickly. There are even more symptoms that I did not mention. So call or hit the web for information and prevention. Blacks have a higher occurrence. Do you want to know more? Call 1-888-4-STROKE or visit www.strokeassociation.org. High blood pressure, diabetes, and obesity. All make the risk of a stroke more likely. But remember, if it happens, do not delay. Or disability might be the price you pay. A public service message brought to you by the American Stroke Association and the Ad Council. Opinions, options, answers. Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Wellness Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now, here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Wellness Community. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking About Cancer. 
I'm Kim Tebaldo, and today we're joined by Dr. Leslie Shover, professor at MD Anderson Cancer Center, and Pamela Lewis, a cancer survivor and senior behavioral research coordinator, also at the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center. We are talking about sexuality and intimacy issues many people face after they've been diagnosed with and treated for cancer. Uh, Leslie, you've told us about some of the sexuality and intimacy issues that can come along with cancer, but um, explain to us a, a, a little bit more um, how cancer treatments cause these sexual problems, because I think that, frankly, a lot of folks would be surprised to hear that actual cancer treatment can cause some of these sexual problems. I, I think, it, again, it's just a topic that doesn't come up enough and that needs to be addressed. Well, it typically is the treatment rather than the cancer itself that does okay. the damage, and think about it that in order to have a a happy, healthy sex life and feel pleasure, you need to have um, blood vessels in the genital area that can bring blood into the area because that's what happens when you get excited. And for a man, that makes an erection. For a woman, the vagina deepens and produces the, the... the clear, slippery fluid that makes intercourse comfortable. And if the blood flow to those areas is interrupted by radiation in the area or surgery, then that can create problems. You also have to have your nerves working. And luckily, very few cancer treatments take away the sensation in that area, like the sensation in the clitoris or the sensation at the head of the penis. But what they do is they affect the nerves that direct the blood to flow in when you get excited. And so that's the reason treatments can create problems. And radiation can damage the blood vessels and nerves in the area too. And chemotherapy often creates problems because in large doses, like the kind of chemotherapy doses that you can get when you're going to have a bone marrow or stem cell transplant, especially if they use a class of drugs called alkylating drugs, um, then what can happen is they damage the ovaries or they damage the testicles enough that you actually have abnormally low hormone levels. And hormones often act in the brain and help help men and women feel sexual desire, but they also have local effects. In men, if you don't have enough testosterone, the male sex hormone, you may in fact have less sensation and pleasure um, on the penis or surrounding areas. And in women... Um, if you are low in estrogen, that's one of the chief reasons that women get vaginal dryness. Mm. Okay. Well, I, it, it's a, a great explanation, and I think we're really getting some good information um, out there about these topics. Uh, Pamela, you were young when you were diagnosed with breast cancer. You were 36, you told us. Um, what kind of support did you have at that time, and, and, and were you in a relationship? How did you start to really think about these issues at that age? Well, Kim, when you're first told that you're diagnosed with cancer, you're very numb. I was called on the phone while sitting in my cubicle at work, and um, it's an experience that leaves you um, just, you have no feelings or, you know, you don't know what to think at that time. So you are not really thinking about support until after you come to the realization that this is happening to you. I think you go through those stages of um, grief. You know, you're in denial, and then I was first angry about it. And having a spiritual background, and this was one of my biggest support systems, having a spiritual community, um, very angry with God because I'm thinking that I'm going to die at an early age. Mm. And then once you come to accept it, um, 
you have your family behind you. And, you know, Leslie had mentioned um, the devastation in the African-American community with breast cancer, but there's also a silence that we have when it comes to cancer and any other diseases. Being that I was a coordinator on a project with African-American survivors, working with other survivors, I did not want anyone really to know about it, and it was just a strange and sad situation. But I did turn to um, one of my counselors uh, on my project who's a long-term survivor at 11 years, Lorene. Also, Leslie gave me support in a direction of arming me with the tools that I needed to know as far as what type of treatment options are out there for me as far as uh, fertility, uh, what to expect going through treatment, what kind of surgeries to consider, Mm -hmm. as well as other young survivors, uh, sorority sisters who uh, had breast cancer prior to me with this experience. And at the time, I wasn't in a relationship. I was divorced in August of 2004, so I was really coming off the heels of divorce and layoffs and just trying to get myself together, and then cancer happened. Mm-hmm. So, And then um, I understand a few years later you did get involved in a relationship and you became pregnant. you want to tell us about that? Yeah, and um, got involved with someone in spring 07, 2007, mm-hmm. and later um, came became pregnant. And in finding out that I was pregnant like a Friday, that Sunday morning, I was um, miscarrying. I thought that um, maybe this was something normal, you know, passing blood. But, you know, hey, called my doctor, and he said, it sounds like you're having a miscarriage because you were only two weeks pregnant. My uh, gynecologist was very leery about, and he still is, um, regarding me having children. He feels from his experience with um, other young survivors and other women who had children post-cancer, and there's no sound evidence, from what I understand, from this really being true, but he just feels that uh, the treatment has some effect on our fertility, which is really true. It has some effect on our fertility, but he also thinks that, you know, cancer and children don't mix. I hear a lot of that uh, from doctors, you know, cancer and children don't mix, but there are women who have gone to have children after cancer, but I guess yeah. it wasn't my time, and he really think it was because of the radiation treatment. Mm-hmm. Um, the oncologist feel that I should have waited at least three years out, and she would like for me to, you know, make sure that I see her for follow-ups before I decide to have a child because of the estrogen and progesterone component as part of my diagnosis. And do you still, um, do you still think about having children? You know, I'm turning 40 in a couple of months, so at this point, no, I don't think about having children, but I do think about what my life would have been if I would have had children. Uh, when I do see um, some of my friends or younger family members with babies or newborns, you know, it does hit you. You know, you get depressed. You think about, will I ever be in that position? Yeah. But, you know, I, I'm just scared of the risk at this point, and... I mean, I try to just cope with it. That's the best I can do, and I come to accept that my purpose is maybe to help care for other children. And does your faith and your family help you with that when you think about that? Yeah, they do. They really do. And when a lot, of, when I date other people or when I meet people and they say, wow, you're, you're almost 40 and you have no kids, I mean, what's up with that situation? Mm-hmm. And, you know, and I tell them, you know, um, 
I was married before. We didn't have children, and now um, I'm faced with the possibility of a risk in having a child, and I tell them about the breast cancer, and I just tell them that I accepted it. It's a challenge. It is a challenge in looking at uh, couples and looking at women my age having children and younger, but it's something that I have learned to deal with. My family support me 100%. That's great. That's great. Um, Leslie, I know infertility and difficulty getting pregnant and having children is one of the most important issues that you help people deal with. What options do people have if they're concerned about having children in the future? What are some of the things that people need to think about and talk about with their medical team? Well, in fact, you know, I think Pamela's experience and the information that she was given is very typical of what happens out in the community. And I was really sad because I didn't know about her miscarriage till long afterwards, so I didn't get a chance to talk with her at the time, and I'm sure it was just because she was feeling private and grieving because we're good friends as well as 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 colleagues. Right. <laughs> and I'm really proud of what a wonderful advocate for breast cancer survivors that um, Pamela has become. Yeah. But one of the things is that we that we know is that you know there have been a number of fairly large studies done especially in the Scandinavian countries where they keep track of everybody from birth to death and they have all these government records and they can match up things like your cancer records and the birth records mm-hmm. and what we have found is that even for breast cancer, which is one of the cancers most related to hormones, um, that women who do have a child after cancer have as good or better survival than women who don't. And so there's no evidence from a research point of view to think that being pregnant would make a cancer, you know, come back or or trigger the cancer if some cells are lying dormant somewhere in the body. Um, But another thing, though, that is important is I think, Pam, were you on tamoxifen when this all happened? No, I I was given the option of being on tamoxifen, but I decided not to. I just felt that tamoxifen side effects were not going to fit with me. Because if a woman is on tamoxifen and is still not in menopause, she should be very careful with birth control because tamoxifen actually has been used in Europe as a fertility drug, and it, it can actually increase your chance of getting pregnant, and there are some indications that it might cause some birth defects. Mm-hmm. Um, but as far as radiation causing a problem, the radiation that you get when you have breast cancer is, you know, higher than unless you're already pregnant, they worry about shielding the fetus. But, you know, it's, it doesn't involve your uterus normally if you're not pregnant and shouldn't have any influence afterwards on your fertility. It's radiation to, to your pelvic area like you might have for cervical cancer or some Hodgkin disease um, radiation treatments that is likely to affect your fertility or make you more likely to have a miscarriage. So, Leslie, we just have a couple minutes until the break, but, but uh, if someone is of, of, of childbearing age and they are diagnosed with cancer, man or woman, uh, quickly, what are, you know, maybe give us a checklist or give us some of the, some of the specific okay. advice you have for them, what questions they need to ask, what they need to think about before they have surgery, radiation, chemo, well, men have a really easy and, although it's not cheap, it's not that expensive option, and that is the to bank sperm before their <laughs> cancer treatment. Yeah. 
and um, you know that involves ejaculating and and taking the sample to the lab or a sperm bank where it's frozen and can be kept for many 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 years without deteriorating. And if if you um, are not fertile after your cancer, you can use those frozen sperm sometimes with infertility treatments that are expensive, but to have a baby. Women don't have anything that easy. Of course, women are starting to sometimes go through a a short IVF cycle and freeze embryos, or if they're single and they don't have a partner and don't want to use donor sperm from a stranger, Mm -hmm. they can freeze unfertilized eggs. Mm -hmm. But, you know, with any of those options, just doing one cycle is going to give you, you know, a, a very iffy probability of being able to have a live birth, and and those things tend to be much more expensive than the okay. alternatives. Great. Okay, Leslie, we're we're going to take a a quick break because I want to talk a little bit more about uh, some of those options. Um, this is frankly speaking about cancer. We will be right back. Opinions, options, answers. Voice America Health and Wellness. Hello. Hi, Bill. Uh, This is George Dewey from up the street. Oh, hey, George. How you doing? Good, good. Say, I noticed you've been walking to work these days instead of driving, Mm. and I uh, don't quite know how to say this, but... But... But what? But... But... Your butt. Your buttocks. Your butt. I think I found your butt on my front lawn. Have you recently lost it? As a matter of fact, I have, George. It's about time someone noticed. Well, it was kind of hard to miss, if you know what I mean. Anyways, would you like it back? Do I like it back? No, not really. So it's okay if I throw it out? Sure, that's fine. Take it easy, George. Small step number eight. Walk instead of driving whenever you can. It's just one of the many small steps you can take to help you become a healthier, well, you. Get started at www.smallstep.gov and take a small step to get healthy. A public service announcement brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and the Ad Council. Effective cancer treatment requires more than just medication or surgery. For the country's 12 million cancer survivors and their loved ones, the social and emotional challenges of adapting to life with cancer are ongoing. How to handle coworkers' questions, how to get comfortable with new physical realities, how to reassure worried family members, or explain to friends your priorities have changed. For more than 25 years, the wellness community has been the nation's leader in providing free counseling, education, and hope for survivors and their caregivers. Whether online or at one of our 26 centers in the U.S. and abroad, the wellness community is ready to offer the support you need to live a better life with cancer. For more information on support groups, publications, nutrition, exercise programs, and more, call 1-888-793-WELL or visit us online at www.thewellnesscommunity.org. That's thewellnesscommunity.org. The Wellness Community, celebrating over 25 years of cancer support, education, and hope. Your life, your health, your network. This is Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Wellness Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now, here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Wellness Community.
Welcome back to Frankly Speaking About Cancer. I'm your host, Kim Tibaldo. Today we've been discussing perhaps what a lot of people try to avoid talking about, sexuality and intimacy issues. Cancer comes with a lot of baggage, and unfortunately many of the side effects from cancer treatment can result in a wide range of sexual problems and sometimes infertility. We're here today with Dr. Leslie Schober, professor at MD Anderson Cancer Center, and Pamela Lewis, a cancer survivor and senior behavioral research coordinator also at the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center. Leslie, you've told us about what people can do if they are afraid they um, may become infertile after treatment, what some of their, uh, what some of their options are uh, in terms of, uh, of uh, men donating uh, and freezing sperm, uh, women sometimes freezing eggs. Um, but w- what if folks discover that they can't, uh, that they can't uh, have children or that possibility is suddenly eliminated for them? What, what are some of the uh, emotional issues that people face, and what are some of the things that you've seen people do to, to come to terms with that? Well, you know, I kind of call it the double whammy because it's, it's you know, first you've got the, the injury of having cancer come on, on you out of the blue, and then you've got the insult of the infertility if you're a young person. And so I think it's very difficult and very painful, and, you know, for men as well as women. We recently did a, a, a phone interview survey of women who were about 10 years out from their cancer treatment, and we compared women who said they wanted children when they had their cancer and weren't able to have them with women who were able to complete their families or had all the children they wanted. And we found that even 10 years later, the women who had not been able to have wanted children still had considerable grief and and upset and distress about it. And one thing that occurred to me is that, you know, we do a lot of things to try to make infertility treatments easier on couples, you know, giving them relaxation exercises and couple therapy and all kinds of things. But we haven't really ever had much of a treatment program for people who have been sitting around for years with that pain inside them. And that's something I really want to work on. Yeah, I know. I think that it's a great suggestion. I think those are great ideas because, again, as you're suggesting, these are topics that are not coming up. They're not coming up with the physician. And we also hear here at the wellness community um, people telling us that no one ever told them that this was a concern or no one ever told them that there was a risk of infertility as a result of treatment. Um, right. So there definitely needs to be much more education and communication um, around these issues. There also is very little formal research done on on how easy or difficult it is to adopt after cancer. There's a very good um, online kind of bulletin board community on Yahoo called Adoption After Cancer, and I've, you know, kind of lurked around on it now and then for a long time, and, you know, it's mostly pretty well-educated couples with, you know, financial resources who are trying to do international adoption, and countries recently have, you know, even restricted more, you know, what age or medical history you have to have in order to get a child in international adoption, and it often costs $35,000 and up by the time you go through all the costs. And domestic agencies, of course, their, you know, their first priority is to to place a baby or a child in a home that's going to be stable and healthy. And so they also sometimes are pretty biased against choosing a couple 
where one partner's had cancer, but they don't have to publish their criteria. All they have to do is say, well, you know, our job is to look out for the babies. And a lot of adoptions are done now by, you know, birth mothers who meet um, adoptive couples or singles on the Internet. And I also think that, you know, many birth mothers might worry about giving a child to a family where one spouse has had cancer or to a single person in that that situation. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It becomes that, much more complicated. That is true. That is true. You know, as a survivor, you... You would like to get the information you need from your doctors. I, as part of the Spirit Study, I interviewed over 30 young survivors mm-hmm. regarding infertility and sexuality concerns post-treatment. And a lot of survivors, like myself, when you're diagnosed, and for those of uh, the survivors who are in relationships or newly um, newlyweds, uh, when you're diagnosed and they were asking about infertility, when they asked their doctor about, hey, we want to have children, um, from what they're telling me, the responses were, hey, you need to be concerned with saving your life. Mm-hmm. Th- that's something that you don't need to worry about at this point. Mm-hmm. And uh, a lot of them stated that they were not told about the infertility that may come with the treatments. And as far as my situation, my oncologist stated, you know, your gynecologist is the expert in that area. I think you need to follow that direction then. My gynecologist was leading on my oncologist, and no one was communicating. And my gynecologist told me, you know what, looking at all my patients, those coming off of tamoxifen, you know, I've seen people getting cancer again, and this, this baby issue, you just need to not do it at all. So there's a lot of concerns that you need, you feel that you should get from your medical doctors, but you're not getting it. And you feel like you, you did not? Get adequate information, or well, did I did get adequate information. I have a dream team here at Anderson. I yeah. had a dream team at MD Anderson, and yeah. I did get a lot of information um, as far as children and uh, what tamoxifen would do, or you know, my options if I want to have children in the future. Mm-hmm. However, you know, as far as when it got down to it, and when I became pregnant, but like I said, it I found I was pregnant overnight. Next thing you know, two days later, I'm having a miscarriage. Yeah. So um, the doctor said it's a possibility that the baby still is there, but they could not reach a conclusion on whether I should keep the baby. Yeah. So they're saying that being that you're miscarrying, we don't want to risk of trying to save this child and something happens to you, you know, down the line. Yeah. So, of course, I was told to have a therapy, well, have a clinical abortion because they could not come to agreement whether it would be healthy for me to have the child. Mm-hmm. So. Really difficult issues to to deal with and, and, and having just dealt with cancer, it's really it's quite a bit to bear. Um, I, I imagine that, um, Pamela, because you were at a place like MD Anderson, you were getting, you know, it's a big, obviously big academic center. Uh, you were getting maybe a lot of information, maybe a lot more information than someone would be getting in a smaller oncology practice or in a community practice. Do you think that's true, Pamela? That is true. And as I stated earlier, I did a lot of interviews for women from all over the country and a lot of young survivors stated, or a lot of women, period, state that, you know, they feel um, in their community, some minority women state, hey, my treatment is not as quality as MD Anderson. Or, you know, my doctors, I feel, were not giving me the information I needed um, because I was a minority or because I didn't have this much money, mm-hmm. because my insurance didn't cover these possibilities. Yeah. So due to lack of financial um 
um, financial resources due to possibly me being a African American Hispanic woman or a single woman and entertaining the idea of wanting to have children in the future or wanting to have a child outside of marriage, yeah. those things were not explained to me. Yeah, yeah. And for a little evidence about that is that even for men about sperm banking, yeah. um, we found that that um, oncologists kind of cherry-pick who they're going to refer um, for sperm banking. And if a man has a really... Um, nasty cancer, and they don't think that he has a good chance at long-term survival, they'd rather not mention it. Or if they think that he can't afford it, they often will not mention it. I hear that a lot from oncologists. And we did a survey of young men and asked them if they bank sperm or not, and if not, why. And only 7% said that financial reasons were a major factor in not banking sperm, but 25% said that a big factor was not getting the information they needed in time. Wow, so some real discrimination happening there. Yeah, and so, you know, when I give talks to oncologists, I say, hey, you know, it's the patient's job to make this decision, not yours. You know, your job is to, you know, give the information um, and let them make the decision. Leslie, quickly, we have a, uh, a minute before we go to our break, but um, I know you talked about the cost of some of these fertility treatments and that they can be quite expensive. Um, are, are these kinds of treatments covered by, uh, covered by insurance? No, uh, we have allowed our private insurers in the U.S. to decide that infertility is not a medical condition. Mm. Would you believe that? Mm. And some... Um, cancer patients can get a letter from their oncologist, and some women have been getting IVF cycles, for example, covered or partially covered. And certainly the infertility specialists do, you know, often bend over backwards to try to, you know, get free drugs from the drug companies or reduce their fees so to make it more affordable. But normally a cycle of IVF in the United States has very little insurance coverage in most states. And what does that cost? And costs maybe between seven and $10,000. Wow. And sperm banking is, you know, maybe around five to seven hundred dollars for each sample you bank and store uh-huh. for you know several years um, but even that for you know a, a poor family who's facing a lot of bills because of cancer treatment is you know quite an expense right and that's it might be it might be the last thing that they're thinking about or have the resources to uh, uh, to provide uh, today on frankly speaking about cancer we're talking about sexuality and intimacy uh, when coping with a, a cancer diagnosis, we're putting a lot of the issues on the table, frankly, folks that, uh, that people are not talking about. Um, we're having a great conversation with two terrific guests, and we are going to uh, take a quick break, and we will be right back. Thank you. A fresh look at today's health. Voice America Health & Wellness. Holistic health and well-being covers many facets, including stress, time management, weight loss, cardiovascular training, and aging. And that's just to name a few. Your life without limits will help to sort it all out for you. Join host Joe Sardi and the top minds in holistic health and well-being for an educational and entertaining hour. Listen for Your Life Without Limits. Heard every Wednesday afternoon at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. 
Effective cancer treatment requires more than just medication or surgery. For the country's 12 million cancer survivors and their loved ones, the social and emotional challenges of adapting to life with cancer are ongoing. How to handle coworkers' questions, how to get comfortable with new physical realities, how to reassure worried family members, or explain to friends your priorities have changed. For more than 25 years, the wellness community has been the nation's leader in providing free counseling, education, and hope for survivors and their caregivers. Whether online or at one of our 26 centers in the U.S. and abroad, the wellness community is ready to offer the support you need to live a better life with cancer. For more information on support groups, publications, nutrition, exercise programs, and more, call 1-888-793-WELL or visit us online at www.thewellnesscommunity.org. That's thewellnesscommunity.org. The Wellness Community, celebrating over 25 years of cancer support, education, and hope. A fresh look at today's health. Voice America Health and Wellness. listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Wellness Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now, here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Wellness Community. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking About Cancer. We've talked quite a bit about how to cope with sexuality and intimacy issues that may arise after you've been diagnosed with cancer. Uh, having cancer is never an easy experience, but sometimes people can think, it, think of it as a, a positive, life-changing event. Pamela, I just I want to hear a little bit more from you about your own personal experience. Um, you know, we've certainly heard folks here at the wellness community tell us that they thought that cancer was a blessing in disguise or it really made them think about their life in a different way, um, help them stop and smell the roses maybe or focus on relationships in a different way. Um, what, what, was it a transformational experience for you and was there any, any positive that you feel came out of that? Yes, it, it, it really gave me a new perspective on life. I, I really appreciate life. I started to learn letting go not harboring um, resentments or, you know, just trying to control things that I can't have control over. Learning that my destiny is not my destiny, um, just simply learning to live life, being happy. And it just taught me that um, also to get in there and work and help others, that it's not all about me. And there are a lot of people out there that need uh, the information that I have. And so that is the reason why I go out and I volunteer um, with Anderson Network and Sisters Network and other organizations because you get to know people, you get to learn people. And if I would have never known anything about cancer or even been touched by cancer, I don't even think I really would have thrown myself into such groups or organizations that help people, even though I had family members with cancer or family members who die of cancer. Yeah. Wow. That's amazing. Amazing. Although one comment I'd make is that when it comes to sex or fertility, it's rare that you can count cancer as a blessing. It's usually more of a, a curse. Right. Um, 
because, you know, the, but the one thing I will say is, you know, that there was a, a book written by a couple who went through sexual rehabilitation after the husband, Keith Lakin, had um, prostate cancer. And one thing he ended up saying was that despite struggling with the erection problem he had, he thinks he ended up as a better lover because he's much more sensitive mm-hmm. to his wife's needs and much more aware that there are lots of things you can do in lovemaking besides just having intercourse, but that's a more rare experience. Yeah. But it does. It does. For me, it does help me focus on what I enjoy um, when it comes to intimacy, and uh, and it also helps you be open with your partner and tell them, you know, what is not comfortable for you. Yeah. I know as women with the scars, for so those who had, um, especially for those who had mastectomies and you know, we're uncomfortable with our scars. We're uncomfortable with one, a, a breast missing. Something's not fair. We feel our womanhood is challenged. Yeah. And so, um, and I do agree with Leslie in that regard. Um, I do feel blessed and, and you know, in many regards to finding out I had cancer and being able to survive it for three years now. But you do feel that at times, as a woman, standing in that mirror and looking at the scars or, you know, looking at yourself, feeling at times you're disfigured, that there is a challenge to your sexuality. There is a challenge to being a woman. And having um, a partner and someone in your life that really appreciates you and not for your body, you know, that's a good thing for survivors as well. And that's something that we have to overcome. Yeah. Well, it's good to hear that sometimes it does does lead to a strengthening of, of, of relationships. Um, Leslie, quickly, uh, we talked about some of the sexual uh, problems and challenges folks can have after cancer. What are, what are some of the treatments that are available to help men and women uh, deal with some of those challenges? Well, for men, there's certainly a whole array of things you can do to have a hard erection again. And what I usually say to men is, you know, you can have erections again, but how much hassle are you willing to go through? Because, yeah. you know, many of the pills that you see advertised on TV, even though they do work for many men, are not strong enough to really achieve firm erections for men who've had prostate or bladder or colon cancer treatment. Um, They need to either use an injection into the penis to create an erection or a pump that you put over the penis and creates a vacuum and makes the penis hard and then you take the pump off and keep a band on the penis. Mm -hmm. Or even some men and have surgery that implants a little pump system into the body to create erections and and that can um, let the penis be soft at non-sexual times. So, you know, there are are options. For women, we really don't know as much about how best to treat the problems that women have. Certainly, I find that many well-educated women have not been given good information about how to use lubricants up optimally, and that sometimes you can do more with them than you think. Um, We do worry about, you know, using estrogen after cancer, um, but, you know, there are some very low-dose vaginal estrogens that probably allow very little to escape into the bloodstream, and, and, you know, most most gynecologists think they're safe enough for almost any kind of cancer. Oncologists tend to be a little bit more leery. And then there's been a big fad to give women testosterone to increase their desire for sex. And I I am very worried about that because testosterone can really increase 
a woman's risk of breast cancer. And I think for women who have had breast cancer or who are at high risk for it, like young women who had Hodgkin's and had chest radiation and now have a strong risk for getting breast cancer at a young age, that taking those hormones is really much more risky than the people dishing them out would like you to believe. And um, I, I also am not as confident as many people are that, that by themselves that these hormones make a big difference yeah. in women's desire and enjoyment of sex. Interesting, interesting. Pamela, I'm going to ask you quickly, um, what, is, what advice would you give to someone who's just been diagnosed with cancer now that you've been through this? Uh, you, you know, we have a chance now. We're talking to a lot of folks listening to us today. What advice would you give these folks? Um, several things. A support system. Get a support system behind you. Mm-hmm. Once you find out you have that diagnosis, before you go to your first visit, whether it's with the surgeon or the oncologist, sit down, get a list of questions that you would like answered, whether it's on sexuality, infertility, get with your partner, your spouse, things that you expect in treatment, and what you, how you're going to support each other through this. Also, keep open communication with your insurance company. Know your coverage inside out. Know what is covered. Mm-hmm. I think those are great tips, great pointers. Uh, quickly, Leslie, what advice would you give someone who's just a diagnosed with cancer? Well, if you're in a committed relationship, you should reassure yourself because there's kind of a myth that lots of couples divorce when one person gets cancer. And, in fact, statistics don't show that that's true. And is there no higher no higher rate of divorce among those with cancer than with the average population? Exactly. Interesting. And it, rather, what we see is that in a in a couple that has a pretty good relationship, yeah. a majority or maybe two thirds or so will say that the cancer brought them closer together because they don't take each other for granted. So there's some of that finding the silver lining there. Yeah. Um, people really appreciate each other when they face you know potential life-threatening illness, and they see that they're strong and they can work together to keep their family life going and their sex life going and get through the cancer. Um, Couples that were already in trouble, and and sometimes couples that are dating and not married, especially young people when infertility may be a problem in the future, are, are more likely to break up. And what I see is that often when I've interviewed people near the time of diagnosis, I can kind of, you know, pick out the ones I think are not likely to make it together because they have already had poor communication or lots of conflict, and they don't have the resources to deal with this. Yeah. Well, we're coming to the end of our show. Uh, You guys have just been wonderful. Some great advice. Uh, great sharing. Uh, Pamela, I especially want to thank you for sharing so much of your uh, personal story. It's been incredibly moving. Um, uh, we've learned a lot today. If you'd like to learn more about sexuality and cancer, visit the MD Anderson Cancer Center online at www.mdanderson.org slash topics slash sexuality. You can also visit the American Cancer Society webpage, www.acs.org, to learn more about the free services of the wellness community. Please visit www.thewellnesscommunity.org. We provide support and education uh, to people with all cancers and to their family members and loved ones at 26 centers across the U.S. and online. Uh, You can also call us at 888-793-WELL. We'd like to dedicate today's show to all of the husbands and wives and partners out there 
uh, taking care of a loved one with cancer. We know this is a disease that has a tremendous impact, um, and we want to dedicate the show to all those folks out there coping with the disease. Until next time, be well, do well, live well. Thank you for joining us for Frankly Speaking About Cancer with your host, Kim Tibaldo. We're here for you every Tuesday afternoon at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. In the meantime, stay connected online at thewellnesscommunity.org. That's thewellnesscommunity.org. 